Well, why don't you guys open up to, kind of hard to recover from some news like that, but I wanted to share that with you before we step into the Word. Uh, Why don't you open up to Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 29. I'll give you a second to kind of find your place and catch your breath. Being an adult is hard, isn't it? How many of you enjoy adulting? Anyone? A few of you. Okay, good. All the younger people in the room are like, yes. When we become adults, we're expected to act responsibly. It's kind of a shock to the system. I don't know about you guys, but it was uh, no different for me as I went from being a 17-year-old kid to an 18-year-old college freshman. I was still a kid and probably am in so many ways, um, but I was being asked to be a mature adult in many other ways. Do you guys remember that shock, any of you? Some of you, yeah? One of the heaviest responsibilities for me was that as soon as I arrived at school, our coaching staff gave us a speech about how we, a group of young men without fully functioning prefrontal cortexes, were now representing the University of Notre Dame. Notre Dame was, a, was and is a well-known school with huge numbers and alumni all over the world, and so we were going to be watched very, very carefully. Our luggage had the university seal on it. Most of our clothing had the university seal on it. We were large men that stuck out anyway in airports, but we stuck out even further because we were one of two teams in the entire country that still wore suits whenever we traveled, us and BYU, the two religious schools. (laughs) Now, pressed deeply into our hearts and minds was the truth that we were representatives of the University of Notre Dame. As we were, in people's minds, so was the university. If we were immature and out of control, that would be the impression people got of the university. If we were mature and had good manners and spoke eloquently and politely, that would be the impression people got of the university. It was such a big deal that when we first got there, they schooled us on even what forks to use at dinner and when to push in our chairs and how to stand. We had, it was almost like we went to, to school to become you know, these, these uh, high-bred, blue-blooded you know, Englishmen or something. The reality was, was we were told how to speak to the press, we were told how to act when we met boosters. It was a lot of responsibility. As we were, so was the university. And as the university was, so were we to be. It's become a rally cry within evangelicalism over the last 30 years, though, that this kind of thing isn't true for Christians. It's become the rallying cry that we proclaim to the non-believing world, don't look at us. We don't represent heaven. We don't represent Christianity. Look to Jesus. And I truly believe that this is out of a heart of love, and it springs from that place of shame and guilt that we can't better display Christ, and so we wouldn't want to harm his testimony, so we point people to Jesus. But if we run this statement and this thought process through the Bible, it actually comes out in glaring disagreement with Scripture. Yes, we are to look to Christ, because he's our salvation, our savior, our king, the author and finisher of our faith. We are to look to Jesus. And that's why the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were written and published for that purpose. Look to Jesus, the Messiah. But a simple review of the New Testament reveals the citizens of the kingdom are to represent the character of the kingdom. And what we come to see in Jesus in the middle part of the gospels, not just in the birth, not just in the death and resurrection, but in his life and ministry, what we see is that Jesus' mission to proclaim the kingdom in both word and deed was the same mission we are to have. 
to represent the character of the kingdom with our lives. Now, if you journeyed with us through Ephesians, you saw that it was God's new humanity, the church, acting and responding to the grace and forgiveness of God by loving one another and submitting to one another that was supposed to represent the kingdom. We saw that the Israelites were supposed to do that in Deuteronomy, but they failed terribly. From Genesis on, God's people were to be representations of God's heart to the surrounding peoples and thus bring his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. And so now we are back in one of the Gospels, the Gospel according to Mark, and what we're seeing here by the activity and ministry of Jesus is the character of the kingdom over which Jesus rules. Remember what I shared last week, that the section we are in is part of what's called a chiastic structure. If that's a fancy word and you don't remember that from last week, you can go back and listen to it online. It's basically that the structure is broken down in a certain way to focus on certain pieces. And I shared this with you last, last week. It's something like this that shows the kingdom of God. So three weeks ago, we covered the main point of Mark and the mission of Jesus, that he's preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is focused on in the center here of the chiasm, the mission of the king. But then also, beyond that, the last two weeks, we've looked at the called citizens and the authority of the king, the people of the kingdom, the authority of the kingdom. And what we will see today in these two small sections that we're going to read today is the character of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom that in and of itself proclaims the truth of the kingdom of God. And so today, we're going to focus on this, the restorative character of the kingdom of God. It's the title for today's teaching. The restorative character of the kingdom of God. The first main point we will see together today is this. The kingdom of God is restorative, bringing justice that leads to righteousness. If you've been here with us for a long time, this is probably ringing a lot of bells. It's joining together books like Isaiah and Ephesians and Deuteronomy and Romans and Matthew. To understand what I mean, let's first look at the foundation of God's rule as king in the kingdom. And let's look at the foundation of his enthronement when he is reigning in holiness. Look at a couple places just in Psalms with me here really quickly up on the board, Psalm 97, 1 through 2. It says, the Lord reigns. And remember, L-O-R-D in caps behind it in the Hebrew is the name of God, the Exodus God, Yahweh. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In other words, this is the bedrock of his reign, righteousness and justice. Psalm 89, verses 13 through 16. Speaking of Jesus, the mighty arm of God, the right hand of God, the psalmist says, you have a mighty arm. He's speaking to God the Father here, Yahweh. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. 
This is what Seth was praying about earlier, about the imputed righteousness of Jesus, that we get the righteousness of God given to us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice. In other words, have the festal shout and stand in the light of Jesus' faith. Even our reading from Isaiah spoke of Jesus as eventual king, one that we read often in the midst of Christmas. But it's speaking about his kingdom reign. Look at Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 on the screen. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with what? Justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Hebrew, this word government is misra. It means kingdom, dominion, empire. As 2019 Americans were like, government, ugh, let's get that part out of there. But it means kingdom, dominion, empire, in which Jesus is the emperor, the king, the sovereign. And it will be an empire upon which a human incarnation of God, spoken of as the one who sits on the throne of David here in Isaiah, Jesus himself will establish the throne based in justice and righteousness. Now, really quickly, to help us jog our memories on what these words of justice and righteousness mean, I want to play a Bible project video that I've played for you before. It's on the topic of justice, but the visuals that it gives, man, I've never found anything that can do a better job of helping us understand the context of righteousness and justice than this video. So let's just take a few minutes here and take a look at it. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. 
Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. 
God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we have a good understanding of these words, tzedakah v'amishpat, righteousness and justice. A broad definition, as it even talked about there, was that righteousness here means right relationship between God, man, one another, and creation. See, this is what happened through the cross, is that Jesus restored right relationship between man and God, between people, and between our relationship with creation. And justice is that action that takes broken relationships and puts it back right again, restoration. Now, that video is so helpful in defining these, and I love that picture of the platforms upon which the people exist. Injustice is pressing down the oppressing of another image bearer. Injustice is restoring the dignity of that person. And that is the restoration that we're going to see with Jesus exampling the kingdom of God in our readings for today. Why don't you take a look there with, uh, with me at the two sections we're going to read today, Mark 1, 29 through 34 and 1, 40 through 45. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, Simon being Peter, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, let's read the next section here, which speaks of the focus of why he's doing these miracles and why he's preaching. We covered a few weeks ago, but just to remind us, let's take a look there at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. We see immediately in these sections that the kingdom of God is restorative. The creator God is known to the Jews as the king of the universe, and that is what he was when he established the earth and placed Adam and Eve upon it. They were to be his image bearers. But when they were tempted to trust their own understandings, their own desires, and their own view of right and wrong above God as their king, they broke the intimate relationship between God and mankind. They rebelled against his authority, and so he was no longer their reigning authority. Now they were living in submission to the adversary of God, ha-satan, Satan in the Hebrew. 
And that rebellion against God was sin that caused separation with God and then trickled down into broken relationships within creation itself, even between Adam and Eve. And so the good news of God's kingdom is that God sent his son to restore. He sent him in human form as Jesus of Nazareth to conquer Satan, restore the kingdom so that God himself is king of the universe and bring humanity captive into the kingdom so that their relationship with God and one another would be restored. The kingdom is restorative. And one day, the fullness of restoration will even come to creation itself. To do this act of restoration, Jesus had to fight back the temptation of Satan, as we've already seen. And he began the binding of his power so that he could proclaim the kingdom of God and draw men and women to himself and to the kingdom of God. Jesus then had to die in our place as the penalty for your sin and mine. Otherwise, he could heal all day long and it wouldn't matter in an eternal sense. Once Jesus paid that penalty for sin, he imputed righteousness to us. He restored our relationship with God. He then rose again three days later as the first fruit of the resurrection, the first citizen of the restored kingdom and the king himself. Forty days later, that enthronement was was complete as he ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, King of the universe. And then he not only imputed righteousness to us, but he imparted righteousness to us by giving us his Holy Spirit that is within each one of us and contained within the church, his people, so that we might act in righteousness and justice because he is our King And so now we actively wait for the fullness of that restoration, showing the kingdom in every chance we get. And so the very practical incarnate picture we receive of this restoration is here in Jesus' healing ministry. These weren't just party tricks. Notice the words used in Mark 1.31. What is it that he did? What what does he do for Simon's mother-in-law? He lifted her up. The imagery of the Bible Project video comes ringing through in this sentence, doesn't it? that he lifted her up. That is what it is to bring healing on behalf of Christ. It's to lift others up. First, we see a physical restoration. Citizens in the kingdom of God are those who help restore physically, in the here and now, practically. Now, you might ask, Hans, wait a minute, what, what are you saying about miraculous healings? Do those still occur? Well, absolutely, but there's a difference. We need to understand that Jesus did many of these acts and deputized his disciples to do the same in this way for a specific time, place, and purpose. Look with me at what Jesus says in John 5, 36 through 37. It says there, but the testimony that I have, Jesus is saying this, is greater than that of John, the baptizer, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am now doing, meaning what we're talking about today, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. You see, the miracles of Jesus and the apostles were to establish that they were sent from God. People have asked me before, why don't miraculous healings occur in the same way they do in the Gospels? Well, because Jesus was here, present, incarnate in the Gospels. There was a reason for it happening the way it did then. We are in a different stage of the timeline of God's restorative 
timing. Now, I think that at times in locales of the world where the gospel is first professed, miracles still accompany that proclamation. I've talked to missionaries and pastors who've gone to certain places, and miraculous healings have occurred. But in the majority of the world that has been given the gospel, I do not think that miraculous healings at the level of Jesus in the gospels is still active. If they were, why is it that in Acts we see Paul and the disciples as they're establishing the church, doing tons of restorative healings and miracles? But then just a decade or two later, we see Paul writing within his letters about sickness that is present. Did he suddenly lose the gift of healing? Why do we see Paul suggesting to his young protege Timothy to drink wine for what is most likely a stomach ulcer rather than pray in faith for healing? Why do we see Paul mentioning his companion Trophimus in his second letter to Timothy and saying that he left him in Miletus because he was ill? Shouldn't Paul have prayed in authority of the Holy Spirit to heal that? The answer is no. He probably did pray. In fact, he says about himself, I prayed that the Lord would remove the thorn in my flesh, and he didn't. We don't know if that's physical or if that's other people that are bothering him. But Jesus' miracles and the miracles that we see in Acts, they were done in a proper time and place for a purpose. But that doesn't mean that we stop praying. Just because the miraculous healings are not happening in the same way, we don't stop praying. We never know when the Lord is going to give a gift of healing to the church through an individual by prayer. And so we keep praying. I've seen it happen a few times. We're going to talk more about what that looks like when we get to practical application. Now, we could, as many have over the last 200 years, get really focused on this piece of physical restoration. But in doing so, I think we're going to miss out on what is actually being talked about here. Many of us who have grown up in more Pentecostal circles are taught to focus on the miracles. And many false teachers have become famous and even entire denominations have been built out of this idea of miraculous healings. But is that the emphasis of what we see in the vast majority of the New Testament epistles? No, not at all. What I want to submit to you is that the second type of restoration pictured in our text today, that of relational reconciliation, is more of the emphasis of the New Testament than even physical restoration. Just go read all the epistles of Paul. Notice the second story is likewise a healing story. But there's something here that we don't necessarily see from our 2019 social context. Remember that to the Jews who desired to live under the ceremonial laws of the Torah, one who had leprosy was deemed unclean. This meant that they were isolated and separated relationally. They were separated from God because they could not approach the temple to gain forgiveness through sacrificial offering. So think about this. If you were a Jew who was given a diagnosis of leprosy, you literally just lost your salvation according to ceremonial temple laws. Would that be pretty rough? Go to the doctor and your doctor's like, hey, by the way, not only are you going to die, but you also are going to die eternally. You can't be with Yahweh. That was the implication of having leprosy. They were also isolated and separated relationally from others because the other would not want to become spiritually unclean like them by being near them or touching them. Can you imagine a life where no one wants to be around you or touch you? Lepers had to leave homes, families, jobs, friendships, all to remain isolated in desert areas. 
And even worse, many, if not most, were falsely accused of some sin that supposedly brought on this plague as punishment. But we know that's not the case. This was such an issue that lepers were required by Levitical law to walk around in populated areas yelling, unclean, unclean. That would kind of be a hit to the ego if you had to yell that about yourself everywhere you went, right? If they didn't, it was rabbinic law that the religious leaders could pick up thrones and stone them as they were walking and yell at them, go to your place and stop defiling other people. Talk about isolated and shaming. Can you even imagine? Do you really think the leper was that worried about the physical manifestations? So what happens in our story here? This isolated leper comes to Jesus begging him. It says that he kneeled. Some commentators believe that this word indicates that he was hugging Jesus' knees or maybe even laying prostrate down on the ground in front of him, begging him for restoration. You can only imagine this was probably the first human contact that this leper had had in only God knows how long. And what did Jesus do? He represented the character of the kingdom and the heart of God by reaching out and touching this man that was unclean. His act of healing brought the relational restoration of inclusion within the community. The leper could now return to his village, to his family, to his job, to his relationships with others. But it doesn't stop with human community. Notice what Jesus does next, and he's pretty serious about it. The words are that he sternly charged him and sent him away at once. These are emotionally charged words. He sternly charged him to fulfill righteousness by going to the priest and doing what Moses commanded in the Levitical law for the restoration of a leper to the community. Now, there could be a number of reasons for this. The priest was the final seal of approval, if you will, to allow an unclean person readmittance to the community. It could also be that Jesus is trying to show that he is submitted under the law of the Torah, under the reign of the king. But it might actually be more than that. This act of going to the temple and offering sacrifice was the man's required response to the fact that God had healed him. You see, Jesus' desire and goal was for the purpose of drawing others to God, not just the physical works of justice. If it were, he would have said, hey, you're healed, move on now. Don't worry about a thing. But no, he says, go, do what is righteous, give glory to God. A wonderful New Testament theologian, a British woman named Marna Hooker, sums these ideas up with this statement. She says, We discover that the inbreaking of the kingdom in Jesus' healing miracles means more than mere physical healing. Those who were excluded from the community because of their infirmity are restored to membership of God's people. The kingdom of God, you see, is restorative. Those who are its citizens look for ways to work justice from the miraculous to the mundane so that righteousness can be restored. Right relationship between God, self, one another, and creation. If we can truly understand this and minister in a way that reflects it as Jesus did, then the next thing that we're going to see is this. You can see this even in our story today. The restorative aspect of the kingdom will attract those seeking righteousness. 
can write that down. The restorative aspect of the kingdom will attract those seeking righteousness. You see, the kingdom of God is both missional, it's sent out, and it's attractive or attractional, it draws in. And we see this tension in the story of the leper. The kingdom is missional because it originates out of God proactively coming to the very people that he desires to save. Jesus was sent to save us and restore us and restore us to relationship with God. That was his very mission. We even see Jesus going to Simon's mother-in-law and reaching his hand out to touch the leper. These things are missional. They're modeled for us that we are sent out into the world as salt and light, proclaiming the kingdom through our words, but more importantly, in our actions of restoration and justice leading to righteousness. Now, dear brothers and sisters of mission, do you see yourself as this, as sent out for this purpose? Do you individually, not the people sitting to your left or right, but do you individually think that you are this? If not, I would challenge you to change your mind today and realize that this is your commission. You are sent out as missionaries on the same mission that God has to reach the lost. And you each have a specific evangelistic field, whether that be your own family, your workplace, your school, or your neighborhood. I want you to think about, right now, pause and think about what is my evangelistic field to which I've been sent as a missionary? It should be pretty easy to come up with. For Jesus, it was the hometown of his friend Peter, the base of his ministry, the somewhat rural small town of Capernaum, right outside the synagogue he just walked out of. Tradition holds that Peter's house was literally a few hundred yards away from the synagogue. It was like walking to the end of our parking lot. You can go there today and you can see where tradition says the synagogue and Peter's house were. Now that you have your own evangelistic field pictured, I want you to realize that while God does call all of us to affect justice across the world, and we will talk about how to do that in our application section today, I want us to realize that God has primarily given us our own sphere of influence and locale for a reason. You see, the region around Galilee was a bit of a backwards area to all the fancy people in Jerusalem or Alexandria or Damascus. But notice that you never see Jesus walking around through Galilee in the Gospels going, man, if only I could do something big for God somewhere else. If only I could change the world for the Father. This hick town is too, too small for me to do that here. Everybody knows me. I need to leave so I can make a real impact for the kingdom. No, he never says that. He impacts the kingdom in righteousness and justice right where he is at. I think it's very purposeful that his ministry is based in Galilee. Literally, people in the Gospels are like, Galilee? Seriously? Something good came out of that? The message that he brought was physical healing, yes, but more importantly, it was the message that the kingdom of God exists right there in that tiny little town. And it's a kingdom of restoration and justice and righteousness. The gospel proclamation of Jesus has a plan for your life and coming to him will make you blessed. It will attract people, absolutely, but the attraction will quickly fade when suffering kicks in and the harshness of life kicks in and the fact that it's hard to follow a king kicks in. 
And when that fades away, the people who were brought in and hooked that way, they will fade away too. But a message of the kingdom of God in justice that leads to righteousness will attract those who are actively seeking that, the kingdom. That's why Jesus spoke these words when he gave the words of God on the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at just a couple of these quotes here. He said, blessed, this is the true meaning of blessed, not hashtag blessed, blessed more than I deserve, not that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, restored relationship with God, with one another, with creation. For they shall be satisfied. In Christ, they shall be satisfied. Secondly, there's this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those who want righteousness, not a moral superiority or being good or being perfect, that's not what righteousness is. But those who want righteousness, the holiness of God, the wholeness of God, the restored relationship between God and his creation, they will be attracted by a kingdom made up of citizens reflecting the restorative justice that Jesus modeled for us. For us to be the evangelical church that we desire to be, the true definition of evangelical, a church that calls all of Salem and Kaiser to repent, to be baptized and enter into restored relationship with God and his people. If we want to do that, then each and every one of us need to step into the same role of reflecting the character of the kingdom of God in our lives each and every day. But it's at this point that many of you might hold back and say, wait a minute, Hans, how on earth can we do that? Jesus could heal and exercise demons. We got nothing. We can't do that. What can we possibly do to show the restorative nature of God's kingdom? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the truth is, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we can reflect the kingdom every day. And if the miraculous happens, then praise God. If one of you prays for JT's ankle to instantaneously be healed, and I would recommend you do that, then we will all praise God. But it also could be the point of the miraculously mundane that we're going to talk about today. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we can reflect this kingdom every day. Over the years, I've seen so many Christians act in life in a way that says, well, I must not have enough faith to be a healer or a miracle worker, so I guess I'll just leave it up to the pros. So many other Christians who say, well, I want to bring restorative justice, but I'm just not one of those people that enters into all those social justice causes, so I guess I'll just leave it up to the pros. So we go about our plotting, mundane, boring lives, thinking, man, I wish I was one of those people that could bring the kingdom. All those cool people that post on Instagram that they've brought the kingdom to earth. I'm not one of those. The reality is, though, that the letters throughout the New Testament show us how to live out lives in which we reflect the restorative nature of the kingdom of heaven each and every day, even in the miraculous mundane of everyday life. Let's first think about physical restoration. How much can we do that? Well, one, day, one way to do this is by praying for those who are ill within the church. I think the church has gotten pretty good about this, but what's interesting is that when we pray, oftentimes it's for, you know, our cousins, uncles, dogs, you know, whatever, right? 
We sit there in prayer circles and go, gosh, I got to come up with something. Who do I know who's sick? Let's see. Oh, so-and-so has a hangnail. That's it. Can you guys pray for the hangnail? No, that's not terrible, and I don't want you to feel bad about doing that, but how often do we see someone who's depressed or anxious, or maybe they are hurting physically, they've got a cast, or they've got something going on? Do we go up to them and say, hey, can I pray for you? And maybe not just for that immediate healing, but maybe for comfort and maybe for care and maybe just putting an arm around them is what they need in that moment. Does that bring physical healing? You know, it's interesting, the word healing in the Greek, the word healing that's used here in uh, 1, 32 through 34, in the Greek, it's the word therapuo. It's where we get therapeutic. It's where the idea of counseling, talk therapy comes from, is that a person can sit with another person and just simply by having them listen and care for them, it's therapeutic, it's healing. You think the church can do that? Can you do that? Can you bring therapeutic healing relationships to the people within this church? Even if you don't have a professional counseling degree? Absolutely. It takes a listening ear and a caring heart, an empathetic and compassionate style. When a person says they're hurting, all you have to do is just say, I'm sorry. I feel so bad for some of you. Man, you guys are all perfectionists, right? And so you, you want to do the right thing. And so the person in front of you says, my life is in absolute tatters and I feel terrible and I don't know what to do. And I see some of you, man, I'm praying for you in that moment because I can see some of these conversations and you're like, how do I fix this? They don't need fixing. They need you to put an arm around them and say, I'm so, so sorry. Can I sit with you? Can I listen to you? All of you are perfectly trained by the Holy Spirit to do that. Amen? So, we can pray for each other. One of the other ways that we can pray is every Sunday there's elders standing in the back ready to pray. And in the book of James 5.14, it commands us. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you go back for prayer today, I have dropped the ball in getting all of our elders the little thing that's on my keychain that holds oil, and I need to do that so that they have the anointing oil. We just use olive oil, by the way. It's not something specially blessed in Jerusalem or anything like that, right? And we'll anoint you. We'll pray for you. Today, we might just pray for you. We may not anoint you if we don't have the oil. But come to us. There are other men and women in this church that love to pray. Go to them. Ask for prayer. And so today, if you want to be healed and go back and pray. And they'll pray for that healing, but more so they'll pray for spiritual connection for you with the Lord. Another way we can physically lift up others is by practical, tangible care in the midst of being sick. Some in this church are blessed to be able to do this every day. And so for those of you that are EMTs and physician's assistants and nurses and rad techs and any other medical professional I've forgotten, hospice nurses, I want to just take a moment and thank you for the work that you do every day with the gifts and skills you've been given to bring a level of restoration to the effects of original sin in our world. Sometimes people are like, is it a cool thing being in, in you know, professional ministry? I look at these folks and I go, is it a cool thing being in professional ministry, being able to bring the kingdom of God every day? To those of you who do that, well done. But that doesn't mean you are excluded if you're not a medical professional. Helping in tangible ways when someone is sick, even bringing them chicken soup or caring for their kids while they're sick is restorative in a sense. 
We have a few uh, single moms in this church that, man, they're doing double duty. They got the job of the dad and the mom. And man, what a blessing it is for you that are in their community groups to circle up with them and say, hey, when they're sick, hey, is there any way I could maybe take the kids or bring you some food? Man, that brings healing and lifts someone up when they're down. For those that are foster parents and they've got a million and a half things on their mind all the time, like most of us as parents, but they've got the additional role of being counselors to their kids. What a wonderful thing we can do to assist them. Those of you in community groups with those who foster, you can build them up and lift them up. And even beyond that, there are so many other ways that we can restore dignity, hope, and provision through our giving of benevolence in this church, which we give to people when they're down to restore them, through tithing to missions to assist our brothers oppressed by poverty and religious persecution in Burkina Faso, by giving to the missionaries we support in Indonesia who are part of Mission Aviation Fellowship, who assist in medical transport to indigenous people, by supporting the work of Church at the Park and Room at the Inn to help the homeless population this Christmas, by giving them some dignity at a time when they might not have it, by supporting IJM in their work to free the enslaved and oppressed, by supporting those involved in the foster system to care for the most vulnerable in our community. You got enough ideas yet? All of these are ways to restore practically. Take a moment and take stock of whether or not this work of physically bringing justice into the world is a priority in your life. If not, what single change can you make to adjust this in your life today? And if you already are, as many of you in this room are, well done. You're bringing the kingdom to bear each and every day. So that's the physical side of restoration. But then there's the relational restoration we discussed earlier. The more I sit with people in pastoral care, the more I am realizing that the vast majority of heartache, anxiety, stress, depression, shame, and guilt, not to mention what's called somatic responses, sicknesses that nobody can figure it out, fatigue that nobody can figure out. Most of these things come from relational brokenness. Brokenness in families of origin, brokenness in marriages, brokenness in friendships, brokenness in parent-child relationships. So how can we bring restoration relationally? I think of Jesus saying, man, the field is ripe for the harvest. We live in a world that the field is ripe for the harvest of bringing restoration relationally. Well, think back to the justice video we watched at the beginning. How often is it the case where a brother or sister is down and they need a hand to be lifted up? This is what much of the New Testament letters, the playing out of our Christianity, the playing out of our theology discuss, how to model this restorative character of the kingdom within the, bo- excuse me, within the body of Christ. One great example is in our reading from this morning from Galatians that Cassie read us. Why don't you guys turn there with me to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, starting in verse 1. It says there, brothers and sisters, the word brothers in the Greek means brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You want to be obedient? Bear one another's burdens. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And again, guys, spirituality is not this weird, you know, supernatural thing where we're talking about ghosts, right? We're talking about the paranormal. That's not the Spirit. The Spirit is the will of God present among His people. The person of the Spirit does the work of joining us together with the Trinity and joining us together with one another and playing out the kingdom through His empowerment in our lives. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's hard fighting against the flow, isn't it? Bringing the kingdom of light to bear in the kingdom of darkness. It's hard to bring relational restoration, isn't it? There's some of you that I've talked to even the last couple weeks who are in the midst of relational difficulty. And man, it's been expressed to me time and time again, man, this whole living out like covenant community thing, this is exhausting. Did you think it would be easy? No, it's extremely hard because guess what? We are all constantly fighting that battle of either sowing to our own flesh or sowing to the Spirit. So don't give up. Verse 10, so then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul is telling the church at Galatia that restoration of one another is part of what it is to fulfill the law of Christ. We're each supposed to examine ourselves and look out for others. This follows right in line with what we talked about last week, about examining ourselves, seeing how people um, experience us, looking into our own lives to see what is holding us back from fulfilling this love of Christ. And when we see that a brother or sister has been brought low, we do what we can to restore them. When it is brokenness because of sin, we come alongside them and call them to repentance. And that is loving. That is still trying to lift them up. When sin is present, calling people to conviction is loving. It is restorative. And notice that Paul says, do good to all, but begin especially with the household of faith. Back in our text in Mark, remember who Jesus started with? Those within his circle. He came out of the synagogue. He had four guys around him. And who did he heal first? Someone closely connected to them. And then as others came, he loved them by bringing restoration to them. Notice that Jesus didn't start a worldwide healing tour, right? He went to his small circle of friends and assisted those affected in their circle. And then he called them to go outward. And this echoes Paul's words to the Galatians. As you have a chance to do good to anyone, do it, but begin with the household of faith. That's talking about your local church community. And even within this church, we have even tighter circles called community groups called discipleship groups, where we practice this posture of looking out for one another and restoring one another when down. <clears throat> when we started this church, I had the blessing of being kind of the, the center of the wheel, if you will. I was the hub. You know, when we had 20 people, it was super easy for me to check on all 20 people every week, <laughs> so to speak. And as we've grown larger, we can't do that anymore. In fact, that's one of the reasons that a lot of churches stagnate and don't grow anymore is because they continue to act in the model of a small church with a small church pastor 
where everybody expects the pastor or one of the elders to do all the ministry. And the church dies that way and it doesn't bless you guys. And so when we as elders find out that someone in your community group is ministering to you, we rejoice because that means not that we get off the hook, but it means that someone is taking care of you. So recognize that part of the philosophy of our church as we grow is that we want people to be taken care of, and that's not always going to be by one of the five of us or one of our wives. There's just too many people. And so we all take on that responsibility of caring for each other within community groups, within discipleship groups, where we practice this posture of looking out for one another and restoring one another when down. Now, before we go and conquer the world in the name of Jesus, we need to begin where Paul calls the Galatians to begin, right here at home, and begin to examine ourselves as Paul calls us to, to see whether we are acting as the kingdom of God individually. Recognize you can't control other people, but you can control your own mind and heart, especially by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you. And so let's talk about, just for a minute here, some practical ways we can bring restoration right here, and then we'll finish up. One of the biggest ways that I see us tear one another down rather than build up and restore in this church is with words. You guys ever notice that? The thing that brings the greatest amount of relational destruction is words. It's part of the fleshly, human, sinful condition that we somehow weirdly gain camaraderie by tearing down someone together. I, I laugh every time I'm part of some kind of sporting event where a bunch of dudes with dad bods holding their beers are like, man, he's a terrible quarterback. I can't believe it. Oh my goodness, I would do so much better. Really? Take the chip out of your hand, right? But that's kind of what we do. We, we sit and we that's how we gain camaraderie. Oh, let's be buddies. Let's tear down this quarterback who's trying the best he can. We do the same thing. Can you believe that Susie over here, that she's stumbling in her walk? Oh my goodness, right? And that's what we do in the church. We see it all the time. It gives us a temporary feeling of importance and belonging, but its overall result is sowing division and acting as an adversary to the Holy Spirit's desire to build up and to unify. When we gossip, when we accuse, we feel like it elevates us above the people we are gossiping about, gives us a sense of restored power, and it even elevates us above the people we're telling because we are the ones with insider information. But in fact, what it does is it betrays the fact that we actually have a low view of ourselves and such a low view of our worth in others' eyes that we think we need to have insider information in order to be loved. It's an extremely sad thing when we find ourselves tearing down another person verbally. So what can we do to bring restoration? What can I do? What can you do to bring restoration? Rather than gossip about someone, I want us to be a church that truly practices becoming a culture of appreciation for one another. When you look at Paul's words, man, even to the churches that were annoying the heck out of him, how does he start the letter? I give thanks to God for you. Are you thankful for the people in this church, even those that might annoy you? Do you express that gratitude in prayer when you're reading through the directory and praying for one another? Challenge yourself this week, dear brothers and sisters, to pray for those in the church that you might be prone to gossip about. Pray for those that have harmed you. Thank the Lord for them. And if you talk to others about them, 
challenge yourself that while talking, you're only going to speak blessing about them. And if you find yourself on the receiving end of gossip, rather than listen to it, remind the brother or sister that you love them and they don't need to give you insider information in order to be loved. If you sense anger or frustration or contempt in their voice and that's why they're bringing up this person, encourage the person to seek restoration of relationship and reconciliation rather than gossip about them. That's one big way that I think we can affect restoration in this church. Another way is if we find that someone in the church has unknowingly caused harm to us because we can't read each other's minds. We need to seek them out and let them know that what has happened is in need of restoration. In doing so, even as the wounded party, you are reflecting the character of the kingdom by seeking reconciliation with the one who you feel harmed you. It's amazing, uh, but I'm just going to confess for myself, I know that when I sit back and just get angry and don't seek out restoration, I simply get angry that I'm not being loved enough, I do it because it gives me a sense of power, doesn't it? They want reconciliation, but my refusal is actually me having power over them. Go to your brothers and sisters as many times as it takes to reflect the kingdom by restoring the relationship. Another way we can bring relational restoration is often before we can restore relationships with others, we might find it hard to do because we have so much internal brokenness and pathology and maybe even self-hatred. We may not even know it. Bringing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of restoration, may actually begin with you alone truly entering into the pain of your past, the depths of your shame, those things that hold you back from committing to intimate, close relationships. Guys, I think we are the worst at this, aren't we? Well, Hans is talking about emotions again. That's girly stuff. No, that's actually Jesus stuff. There are multiple emotional words used about Jesus in the midst of even our, our text today. We need to be people that rather than trying to connect on things of a shallow level, that's fine too, but rather than do that, we need to dig in and help one another understand why it is we're so fearful of intimate, close relationships. I've long said that the day I know that our church has arrived at maturity, which it never will because we're human, is the day the first words out of men's mouths in the foyer is not, did you see the game last night? But it's, how's your walk with Christ? How's your relationship with your wife? How's your relationship with your kids? How can I pray for you? I find it interesting that, as I said earlier, that Greek word for healing is therapeuo. For some of you, you may need to enter into counseling, whether it be within this church or outside this church, to wrestle with the pain of your internal world. The therapy most of us need, as I said earlier, is this church providing healing relationships, therapeutic relationships where we enter into vulnerability with one another and sit with each other in the pain of processing our shame and our guilt. And this takes active participation with each other to open our hearts to each other. And the one that listens needs to do so without judgment, without shaming, simply empathizing with their pain 
sitting with them, showing them you care about them. In doing so, you will bring healing beyond what you can imagine. The simple, most effective thing that I have done and learned in all of my counseling classes is that a person wants to share with you their deepest, darkest pain or fear, and when they do, that you respond with empathy and compassion and nothing else. And if you do so, rather than them telling you their deepest fear or their darkest secret, and you go on, <gasps> you instead smile at them and tell them, I love you. Thank you for honoring me with that thing that you needed to share. It's amazing the therapy, the healing that comes from that. You're lifting a person up just by doing that. I was so blessed the other day to hear that that had happened in one of the community groups. Someone came to me and said, man, I don't know what happened to me. I showed up at this community group and most of the people were strangers and I found myself in the corner of the kitchen with one of the people in the community group sharing my deepest, darkest stuff and it felt so good and they were so loving. And I looked at them and I said, that's community group. I thought it was just potluck and eating together. No, that's community group. Healing relationships. Dear church, by the way we handle our relationships and seek unity and love in the midst of this community, we will reflect the restorative character of the kingdom of which we claim to be citizens. I'm finding as we have embraced many of the truths that undergird this teaching today that taking action to bring unity and restoration of relationships is super hard. Can I get an amen? It's scary and it's uncomfortable, but this is where we come back to the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the one that calls us to this. Jesus is the one that calls us to be more than attendees at a two-hour event on Sunday, but to become part of a community of people restoring one another. I want you to look back with me to the book of Mark at the very end of our section today. And worship team, you guys can come on up while we're looking at this. And look again at the story of the leper. Notice that the story begins with a leper who by law had to be isolated in desolate places away from people. But then look at the end of that text. Jesus was now the one isolated in finding himself in the wilderness. What led to this switch? A man who knew his brokenness cried out for restoration, and Jesus heard that cry and, moved by pity, reached out to the brokenhearted. And rather than Jesus being overcome by impurity, the unclean actually became clean. What a beautiful picture of the gospel story. We see Jesus taking the place. Jesus ends up in the desolate place where the leper once was. We see Jesus reaching out to restore. You and I were impure and unclean, isolated from God and living in isolation from others for fear of being found out for the impure sinners that we actually are. But Jesus heard our cry. He came to us with a mission to cleanse us. And he substituted himself for us so that we might be cleansed. And he did that by giving his very life so that we might be restored. If you haven't followed Jesus and allowed him to cleanse you, today is the day to start. Today is the day to receive his righteousness. I would love for you to go back and talk with the elders during the second half of worship today to learn what it is to accept that from Christ. Because this sacrificial love comes from the king that we follow. This act that he did is the perfect exemplification of living life out in a way that reflects the restorative character of the kingdom. And today I want to challenge us that as disciples of Jesus, we too should seek 
to show the restorative nature of the kingdom regardless of the sacrifice that is required. To be citizens in the kingdom characterized by restoration under the reign of our Savior, King Jesus, we need to examine ourselves to see if we walk in the obedience of faith to the command of our King to lay down our lives for each other. Notice what Jesus said in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters of mission, if we can continue to grow in this, our evangelism, like Jesus's, will draw those looking for restoration with God and man, and by our lives, we can proclaim the very same kingdom of restorative justice that he did. Today, let's purpose to be those people. Amen? Amen.